This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, published in 1847 when she was 29, is widely seen as one of the great English novels, to some the very greatest. It's a story of Heathcliff and Cathy on the Yorkshire Moors, a passion and revenge. Some early readers were struck by its originality and energy, but many appalled by what one called its brutal cruelty and semi-savage love and most diabolical hate and vengeance. This is Emily Bronte's first and last novel. She died the year after it was published. Her sister, Charlotte Bronte, defended what she called the immature but very real powers of the novel, praising her sister while making it clear that she, the author of Jane Eyre, would not have created a character like Heathcliff. With me to discuss Wuthering Heights are John Bowen, Professor of 19th Century Literature at the University of York, Alexandra Lewis, Lecturer in English Literature at the University of Aberdeen, and Karen O'Brien, Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford. John Byrne, how much do we know Emily Bronte's early life? Um, well, in one way, we don't know very much about Emily because she doesn't leave many letters, there's no manuscript of Wuthering Heights, but we do know about her childhood. Um, so she's born uh, just outside Bradford. Her father is a remarkable man who is born in poverty in Ireland and then eventually gets to Cambridge and becomes a minister of the, the Anglican Church. She's the fifth of six, um, all born very close together, uh, including the three famous novelists, Charlotte, Anne and Emily. Um, and then they then move when she's two to Howarth Parsonage, which is still there, little mill town in, in Yorkshire. And then the great tragedy happens when her mother dies when she's three. Uh, that's the first great loss. Uh, when she's six, she's at school. She's sent to school, the school that becomes Lowood in Jane Eyre. Uh, and then her two elder sisters, Maria and Elizabeth, are taken ill with TB, and they die too. So it's a, a childhood like no other, really, with those three great losses. Uh, and then the, the children then start to write together and play games together, this great kind of creative workshop with uh, the four survivors. Uh, and that she has some schooling when she's about 16 uh, and then does some teaching, uh, but much of the time is spent in the parsonage playing these great creative fictional games and writing fictions and little magazines with her siblings. You said at the beginning of that, John, that there was very little known about her, and yet they wrote extensively, they wrote intensively, were things deliberately destroyed? Were they, were they lost in the wash? Just quickly, why is so little yeah. remaining of people who did nothing much else but write? Yeah, well, they create the, this fantasy world called Angria. First of all, all the children together, the four of them. But after a while, the two younger ones start to want to create their own world, which they call Gondol. And that's Emily and Anne. That's Emily and Anne, that's right. And they, that's a more kind of austere world, in a way, with a more windswept, Wuthering Heights-type landscape than the angrier one. But then um, it looks like all those manuscripts, apart from Emily's poems, have been destroyed and one or two little diary papers. Was it deliberate? Was it accidental? I'm, I'm, I'm agitated by this. Could you just we, say one thing then we, we get on? We just it? don't know, I think. Right, that's it. That'll have to do. Right, what was, can you say more about these, these, these things she was writing with Anne? These stories. Yes. Um, um, it's set in uh, uh, two islands in the North Pacific called Gondol and Galdeen. The only thing that really survives is, uh, is the poems. So she divides her poems into two volumes, one called Gondol Poems, one called Other Poems. Um, and the Gondol Poems 
but uh, are often very like the Wuthering Heights thing, very passionate, very intense. What is quickly? What goes on in gondola? Are they are they are they Lilliputians? What are what's happening? We don't really know because the manuscripts don't survive. There are warring kingdoms. I'm going to get off. Get off there are going to four warring kingdoms in these two islands that are at war with each other. But she writes little things like the Galdines are invading Gondor. But they play it as a game. So Anne and Emily play it as a game, even well into their 20s. They travel to York on the coach, and they're acting out gondol stories. But it's m- almost completely not survived. But the basics of all this, thank you, <laughs> thank you for making so much out of so little, but the basics of all this is that the, she was writing and writing and writing from a very early age, yeah. inventing, imagining a world which was full of terrors and vengeance and threats. Yeah, on windswept landscapes. On windswept landscapes. So we've got the background there. <laughs> Karen O'Brien, what had she been reading uh, in her teens and before she wrote Wuthering Heights? Just generally, what sort of stuff? Well, she was a very extensive reader, even though Charlotte said in her preface to the 1850 edition of Wuthering Heights that she always wrote from the impulse of nature. Actually, Emily clearly wrote from the impulse of a great deal of reading. The Gondol uh, stories, as far as we can tell, owe a great deal to the novelist and poet Walter Scott, and the whole family was steeped in his novels and poems of borderland, dynastic, violent feuding, fear spirited independent women uh, and that sense of a, of a residual antiquated past and an oncoming modernity. That's very important. We forget how I powerfully think. influential Scott was Powerfully influential and, yeah. and poetry as, as, as well as novels. Yeah. It's also very clear that Byron was a very key figure. All of the Bronte children adored those Byron stories of these uh, outcast, isolated heroes who uh, were violent men in a world of piracy or living in castles in the Alps, but their redeeming features were often their one love for their lost or, or still living woman. And I think that Byronic hero idea is obviously very important for Rochester and for Wuthering Heights as well. But can I, I want to... Can, can I, I pause there for one mm-hmm. second? According to John... They had a remarkable father who was a perpetual curate at this yes. time. We yes. hear nothing but kindness and goodness from him, teaching us sure and so on. Where did these violent people come from? It's really very hard to say. I mean, the first biographer of Charlotte suggested that some of that kind of explosive temperament came from the father himself, but there's not a lot of evidence for that, in fact. I mean, one assumes that there was a certain amount in the mill town in which she worked, but also I think some of that that interest in extremity comes from that reading of Scott and Byron, and also those Gothic short stories that the children all absorbed through Blackwood's magazine. There was There's a lot of that, that kind of narrative around. There's a third influence I'd like to come on to, actually, which for me is one of is probably the most important, and that's Wordsworth. Uh, the Wordsworth that, that Emily knew was not the autobiographical Wordsworth, but a Wordsworth of narrative poems, like The Ruined Cottage, where you have a, a kind of outsider figure uh, who narrates and talks about a world that he barely understands, with which he's sympathetic, but nevertheless somewhat uncomprehending. The Wordsworth that Emily knows also is a Wordsworth who's very interested in the elemental aspects of nature, and it's very clear from Emily's poetry that the group of poems known as the Wordsworth Lucy poems about a young woman who has died, who has this intense sympathy with nature, were very, very important for Emily. And one of them, called A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal, really thinks about... That's a wonderful poem. It really talks about this fear and yet longing for extinction through death, through the elemental forces of the natural world. And that word slumber is virtually the last word in Wuthering Heights. Can we just pause for a second? Because Wordsworth is not now thought of as, as the sort of wild... Uh, extreme poet who would influence a wild, extreme novelist at the time is now, in a way, sadly settled. Uh, 
Was he that influential? He obviously was, was that influential. I'd like you to develop it a bit. This is mm-hmm. me being a bit uh, selfish, but could you? Uh, yes, well, I, I think the the cosy Victorian Wordsworth that still somewhat lingers around in our times was not the Wordsworth that the, that the Bronte children knew, um, but they clearly read him very extensively. I think there is that, there is that preoccupation in Wordsworth with creating a window onto very extreme uh, forms of rustic life, extreme forms of poverty, violence, deprivation, consequences of war, seen through the lens of a mediated middle-class perspective. So uh, the, the the long narrative poem that everybody knew, The Excursion, does exactly that in a great many places. And I think that, for me, connects quite nicely with the way in which we encounter Wuthering Heights through Lockwood. Can you tell us how um, this novel came to be published? It came to be published because initially Charlotte had persuaded her sisters to publish a volume of poems in 1846. It didn't sell. It got one or two favourable reviews. The sisters then decided it was time to get going with some novels. Uh, Charlotte uh, dispatched her novel to a publisher. Uh, Emily and Anne dispatched Agnes Grey Anne's novel and Wuthering Heights to a publisher called Thomas Courtley Newby, who then sat on the book for a while. Charlotte's book... Jane Eyre came out in October. Newby realised it was a huge success, so out comes a three-decker novel, Wuthering Heights, and at the back, Agnes Grey in 1847. So it was almost on the back. It was somewhat on the back, yes. Alexandra Luce, you <laughs> it's your first time on radio, and I'm afraid you, Hello, get, the, you get the hard <laughs> question. <laughs> you really do. But uh, Could you give us a plot of Wuthering of Heights? Of course. Well, Wuthering Heights is one of the most powerful and violent novels in the English language. It's a complex story of love, obsession and revenge over two generations. The tale is told by housekeeper Nellie Dean and framed by the perspective of visiting outside a Lockwood and in true Gothic style, neither narrator is entirely reliable. Lockwood has a nightmare where the ghost of Cathy appears at the window begging to be let in. Heathcliff begs the ghost to return and it seems that this nightmare has been gifted to the wrong dreamer. Like the reader, all Lockwood knows at this stage is that there is a complicated history linking Catherine with the names Earnshaw, Heathcliff and Linton. Nellie tells Lockwood how her master brought home an orphan from Liverpool who he raises, along with his own children, Hindley and Catherine. Heathcliff is despised by Hindley, who mistreats him. Cathy and Heathcliff are inseparable, and they play together on the moors until Cathy spends time with neighbouring children, Edgar and Isabella Linton. Now, Edgar Linton courts Cathy, and in a pivotal moment, Heathcliff overhears Cathy telling Nellie that it would degrade her to marry Heathcliff. What he doesn't hear is her declaration that she is betraying her own soul. He's more myself than I am, she says, and she compares her love for Linton to foliage in the woods, deciduous, fleeting, while her love for Heathcliff is like the eternal rocks beneath, something enduring and necessary. Heathcliff disappears, Cathy marries Edgar, Heathcliff reappears three years later, having mysteriously acquired education and wealth. Uh, He begins an unrelenting and systematic program of vengeance. Names at this point start to repeat themselves in a convoluted web of trauma. Heathcliff abuses Isabella, who gives birth to a son called Linton. Heartbroken, Cathy dies, giving birth to a daughter called Catherine. Heathcliff's violence really knows no bounds, and he exploits everyone over many years. His breathtakingly sadistic behaviour 
Julia fails to satisfy him, however, and what takes centre stage in this novel is his obsession with Cathy's ghost and his overwhelming desire for spiritual reunion with her. Now, this might all be somewhat more than Lockwood was hoping for in the view of light entertainment in his convalescence. Um, visiting the Heights again, Lockwood observes the second Catherine and Hareton's relationship flourish. Heathcliff finally dies and is buried next to Cathy, uh, and villagers claim to have seen their ghosts, but Lockwood would prefer not to believe, as Karen's already gestured towards, in the possibility of unquiet slumbers. Well, I think a, a round of applause. <laughs> Thank <I> mean, you. <laughs> so there's no doubt what we're talking about. Thank you very much indeed. What was the early critical reaction? Critics were shocked. Some were genuinely horrified by what they perceived to be the amorality of the brutal, uh, the brutality and the violence of Emily's novel. But what none of them doubted was the powerful originality of the work. So the novel was seen to break both fictional and moral conventions. It was described as coarse, disgusting, loathsome. Uh, an interviewer in the Atlas said, the general effect is inexpressibly painful. We know nothing in the whole range of our fictitious literature which presents such shocking pictures of the worst forms of humanity and that really picks up on um, Charlotte's own response in the preface to the second edition partly in view of this kind of criticism uh, she said of Heathcliff whether it is right or advisable to create things such as Heathcliff I do not know, I scarcely think it is I think Charlotte's uh, apologia for her sister (coughs) slightly gets in the way of what her sister was was real like but we might come to that Yes. Uh, even though some of the reviews were um, savage. You, um, I've read some savage reviews in my were. time. I've had one or two in my time, but nothing, <laughs> nothing even approaching what was said about about that book. Yet even in one or two of the more savage ones, it said the the last few words would would be, and yet I was spellbound. Absolutely, and we don't. Unfortunately, we don't know what Emily made of these reviews. She kept five of them in her writing desk. The Atlas was one of them. The one that you quoted from earlier, uh, Douglas Gerald's Weekly, with the semi-savage love and brutality, was another. And interestingly, they pick up on observations that characters make within the text about Heathcliff, questioning, is he a ghoul, is he a demon? Is he Uh, mad? Is he mad, exactly. Mm. Um, So we don't know what she thought of those reviews. Unfortunately, she wasn't still alive to read Sidney Dobell's praise-filled review of 1850 in the Palladium, which is quite brilliant. It picks up on the design, the originality, the thinking out, he said, of some Mm. of these passages, uh, make this uh, the masterpiece of a poet, interestingly, poet, not novelist. There's a little collection to be read of artists who die just before they Indeed. get their first of great <laughs> reviews on their only great <laughs> reviews. Mm, there you are on offer. <laughs> John, John Byrne, let's go straight to Heathcliff. Tell us about him and does, tell us about him and then maybe talk about what he represents. I'd rather talk about him than what he represents. Anyway, you, away yeah. you go. He's something else, isn't he? I mean, I, um, he's full of mystery all the way through, so his origins are mysterious. All we know uh, is that uh, Mr. Earnshaw finds him starving in the street. And in Liverpool? In Liverpool, speaking gibberish, it says. And, and he's he, about 14. Yeah. yeah. So we, 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 we know, other than that, that one act of kindness... No, he's younger than that, I think. He's is younger he? than 14, oh, right, I think. Right. Um, and then um, he, his physical appearance we don't know about. Um, he's dark-haired, he's gypsy-looking. Um, Nellie says to him at one point, you might be the son of a Chinese emperor and an Indian princess. So ethnically, he might be marked in some way. It's a big slaving port, is Liverpool. It's a big port for Ireland, for, for um, is Liverpool. So he may have come from anywhere in the world. And then he arrives, and he's, he, immediately there's jealousy. I mean, it's a novel full of kind of passionate hatreds and jealousy, um, and there's lots of disputes between him and Hindley. 
Hindley being the son of the son, Earth. the son of Hatton Earnshaw, the true son. Of course, he might be an illegitimate son himself. We don't know. Um, and he and Cathy have this extraordinary passionate relationship, which is almost never described. They just go off onto the moors together when they're young, and then when she makes the and declaration, it's not consummated at all. No, they're children. They're children. But That's even the as thing. that time goes on, as far as we can tell. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then he hears the declaration. Um, of of Catherine, he overhears it, in which she says that she both loves him and both loves Edgar Linton, and she then decides to marry Edgar Linton, and he runs away. She's fifteen, he's sixteen at that point. Edgar Linton comes from the genteel house, the really That's big right, from house, Thrush Cross Grange, Thrushcross yeah. Grange down the valley, yeah. uh, and and he's a genteel man. So she's chosen that as well as. Yeah. Heathcliff. Yeah, so the two the two of them, Cathy and Heathcliff, are running around and they go to Thrushcross Grange, the dog sees them, she's taken in and pampered, gentrified, he's left to go wild. So he runs away for three years at sixteen and comes back transformed. We don't know if he's been in the American wars, if he's been on the continent. Um and then he starts to take his revenge. First of all on um uh Hindley the one who's brutalised him as a boy, his his kind of half-sibling, as it were. Or, um, no, Earnshaw's eldest son. There's Earnshaw's no, no blood relationship. Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, first of all, he revenges himself on him. Then uh, he starts to revenge himself on the next generation. And in one way, you see there are good reasons for the way he behaves so horribly. On the other hand, he's constantly this speculation, is he a vampire or a ghoul or an afreet? So all the way through, he's carrying out these terrible acts of vengeance against the next generation. I think certain moralists wouldn't say there were good reasons. They might say there were reasons. Um, but there we go. And there's more to say of Hitler, but thanks for giving us that kickstart, Karen O'Brien. This novel is told largely by two voices. Emily Bronte invests this man, Lockwood, who takes Thrust Crush Grange uh, to come into the country and enjoy the beauty and solace and peace of the countryside. Then he stumbles on Wuthering Heights. <laughs> Didn't bang for that. And the other is Nellie, Nellie Dean, who's a housekeeper, and we she feel quickly filled in. She read a lot so she can tell this story. There are one or two other voices. They tell the story. Um, what does that give to the book? It's absolutely fundamental. So you're right, we start with the Southerner Lockwood. Actually, the next narrative voice we hear is Cathy's diary that Lockwood, Lockwood reads that strange night in, in Wuthering Heights. And then we go into Nellie's voice, and, there, and, and as you mentioned, there are various other narrative voices as well. But Nellie's is the dominant narrative voice, uh, and it's quite a gentrified voice for the social class that she comes from. It's very important because we are seeing the tale at one remove. It is There's something so excessive, so enormous, so incomprehensible about this fiery, passion between Cathy and Heathcliff and the violence that takes place in Wuthering Heights and the violence in the soul of Heathcliff we haven't yet you, can, you can't really sorry you no. can't really do it any other way go ahead I'm the one to be sorry um, but we're talking about the violent passion let's just address that now mm-hmm. so people know what you're talking mm-hmm. can you tell us how the violence of that passion is expressed it's uh, as John said. We don't see them as it were. We don't see it fully articulated. It's done um, by proxy in the sense that there we understand that their relationship flourishes when they get out of the heights and go out onto the moors and run wild, which they do continually. And it's also staked out through a series of contrasts. So Alexandra mentioned this difference between the foliage of the deciduous tree and the lasting tree trunk. So that idea that somehow Heathcliff is associated with those elemental, permanent forms of nature, and he talks about 
about his own incapacities, uh, Cathy's capacity for enormous passion and enormous love that Linton uh, and others can barely understand and that Nellie herself cannot fully comprehend. She is in some ways quite unsympathetic to that love and regards Cathy as hysterical. Yeah, she's a good voice, isn't she, by tempering for the, for the reader saying, now hold on a bit, we're, we're not going along with you there. She is, she is, but one always senses the limitation of what she can understand. Yeah. I think another very important point to make about her is that she's not merely an observer, she's a participant. She feels herself to be, by proxy, a member of that family. She is, by allegiance, close to the Earnshaw line and very aware that Heathcliff has displaced that heritage and that family and wants to see it reconstituted uh, and is very happy to see it reconstituted at the end. So she's very selective uh, in her sympathies and she's also, as we learn from her own behaviour in the novel, very selective about what she tells and who she tells uh, what she tells to who. Yes, so she's, she's an unreliable narrator and an unreliable person as well. So it's a, it's a stained glass window onto something that we can barely see and barely understand. She does that terrible thing about not letting Heathcliff know that when Cathy said uh, he was he was uh, rough mannered, uncouth compared with Linton, uh, she then went on to say, "But he was wonderful. He was the rock. He was herself. He yes. left by he yes. stopped eavesdropping by then. But she yeah. never passed that. She up never on passes on the I am Heathcliff no. declaration. She also fails to tell Linton that his wife is starving herself to death when she's mm. ill in the Grange. So her behaviour is very selective, and it's hard to get to the bottom of her own motivation. Yes, Alexandra, uh, can we just develop this, Cathy and?" Heathcliff relationship, mm-hmm. which for many people is the core, the reason, and the great glory of the book. Can you just talk more about it? Certainly. Well, it's a relationship of the I am. We might pick up at the I am Heathcliff the, that Cathy says to Nelly. Yes, she says I am him. It's a relationship of complete self-identification. So this is not only two characters who declare their complete devotion to one another, slightly undercut by the fact of Cathy going off and marrying someone else, uh, but they declare that they are indeed the other. So precisely that, Melvin, that I am Heathcliff, which is mirrored later in the book by Heathcliff's declaration, um, I cannot live without my life. I cannot live without my soul. Um, they envisage themselves as utterly necessary to each other's existence. This is why for Heathcliff, after Cathy's death, it's a sort of, sort of death in life for him. He begs with her ghost to haunt me, be with me always, take any form, uh, because drive I cannot me live. Mad. Drive me mad even, he says. I cannot live in this abyss where I cannot find you. Uh, so really they're central to each other's psychology and they're central to each other's understanding of the point of existence, really. Hmm. And that is convincing, isn't it? In a strange I way, think you think it's... You, you have a... Well, you tell me. I think readers are convinced by this. We've been hearing a bit about the framing tale and the fact that the sort of testimony that we receive is mediated by Nellie, and, uh, Nellie Dean and Lockwood. But readers feel as though they have some kind of privileged access to these heightened emotions uh, of Cathy and Heathcliff. Um, which I think in part is to do with the character's real attempt to break through the limitations of language. They're trying to give voice to something that they feel as an embodied passion, something almost at a cellular level. So Cathy registers the difficulty of giving voice to these passions when she says to Nellie, I'm trying to give you a feeling of how I feel. And she has to use very heightened metaphoric language of heaven and hell, untamed wilderness. Uh, she recounts her dream world in order to try to break through language. She tells Nellie how she, was, uh, she dreamt she was in heaven, 
uh, and that she was very upset there, heartbroken, not as Nellie might infer because she's sinful, but because she was alone, uh, heartbroken without Heathcliff. She says that dream has altered the way I feel like wine through water. It's changed the colour of my mind. Uh, so it's something quite central. Mm. There's just one one thing I might also add to that, that, it, that their love is very much about a regression to childhood. You asked mm. whether uh, we think that passion is consummated. I think there's no evidence that it is because in some ways it's longing for that undifferentiated moment of childhood where you have no sense of boundary between the self and other. At crucial moments, Cathy can't recognise herself in the mirror. Uh, Heathcliff seems unaware of her pregnancy. He seems not to acknowledge her maternity, not to acknowledge her mature sexual femininity. So for me, it's 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 a it's a passion that's actually very much rooted in a kind of pre-adult identification with the other or an erasure of distinctions of that kind. I would like to come in and just say something about the prose here, <coughs> John. Um, it's fierce, isn't it? It's extraordinary. She's attacking you all the time, yeah. even when Nellie's doing her rather placid pastoral passages, and then and then and there's a bit of and then and then and then he moved back, he moved in, he moved out, that sort of thing. It, the, the, the attack. There isn't there isn't a chapter goes by without she's got you by the throat. Some other terrible thing has happened. Absolutely. A dog's been hung. Somebody's been bitten. Somebody's been attacked. Somebody's been sacked. Heathcliff's gone and trying to murder somebody else. Revenge has sort of taken over the world. It's, it's non-stop ferocity. Absolutely. And what's so wonderful, I think, is the way that she then embeds that in this complicated narration and a very realistic setting. So it's in a, a, a domestic kitchen, and it's the way that she takes all those grand passions of romanticism and then makes them so verifiably realistic, almost. Um, so that, And that's the way that she, she makes it so credible, so that you, a bit like Lockwood, you enter this world and suddenly it seems natural to be so violently expressive of the most kind of elemental passions. The location of taking people's imagination almost as much as anything else, yeah. uh, up there on Wuthering Heights, on the moor, the wild place. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, it's so interesting. If you look through the novel for the description of the landscape, you can hardly find a moment of it. But it's kind of irrigated all the way through. It's sprinkled all the way through, both as metaphor, so Cathy will have seasons of happiness or uh, she'll be cloudy, but also as kind of realistic detail all the time. And there's a great binary opposition between Thrushcross Grange down there, more civilised, with a, par- with a garden around it and a park, and then the wildness of Wuthering Heights at the top. And the moors are a constant presence there from the moment, you know, when Lockwood treks across them, uh, the snow falls and he's trapped within Wuthering Heights. So the landscape is an active participant in, in, in this extraordinary uh, uh, fusion of naturalistic detail and great passion. There's as much about the weather as there's about the moors, isn't there? Yes, well, absolutely. I don't know literally, but there is. Yes. There seems to be a lot, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Karen, um... People are shut in and shut out all the time. Doors are locked, people are penned in, people are kept prisoner by Heathcliff at one stage, and so on. Um, Is that just the way she saw the story unbending, or is that saying something else as well? That's a very good observation. So there are these incredible moments of incarceration. The most extreme is when Nellie and and the younger Catherine are incarcerated by Heathcliff until young Catherine will marry Linton Jr. But also uh, Catherine's original semi-incarceration at the Grange that that civilises her and and Cathy's 
constant sense of being an exile and a prisoner in her own body and in these incarcerated spaces it it do, it is redolent of the the kind of the gothic novel idea of the incarcerated woman trying to be free there's clearly a trope there about free, female psychological and social imprisonment but i think it's far more than that it's far more about the boundaries between these two worlds and the diametrical opposition between the world of wuthering heights and the world of thrushcross grange and the moors as a bridging distance between them but those those moments of pressure and intensification and incarceration are really crucial vehicles within the plot. Perhaps a slight diversion here, but why do you think that Heathcliff, this man who is full of revenge, savagery, is about to kill several people at a certain time, tortures his wife? There's no other word for it with Isabella, and he marries her. Indeed, I think that can be called torture. We can all agree that that's torture. Uh, and on and on. Why is he turned into a romantic hero for so many readers? Well, Isabella, the woman he marries, who is Linton's uh, younger sister, believes that he's a romantic hero, and she's so quickly disabused of that, almost on her wedding night. His resentment towards her is clearly a proxy for his anger towards Linton for marrying uh, Cathy, but it's also um, uh, an outburst of his growing sadism. There's another aspect to Heathcliff's character which we need to mention, which Cathy herself identifies, which is that he's avaricious. Part of this long uh, revenge plot and this sophisticated revenge calculation is the knowledge that Isabella uh, and he, you know, could be heirs to, to Thrushcross Grange, and that ultimately that's what happens. So but it's also acquisitive violence. That makes it worse. With respect, why do so many people think of him as a romantic hero. John, you've got your hand up. I, I think one thought is that he's in agony inside, and the reason why he's so horrible to everybody else is that somehow he's externalising this internal suffering and pain, and that's the sign of his love, so that he's tormented by Catherine, who's dead, and so therefore that's why he has to be so horrible to everyone else. It's because of the fathomlessness of his passion, you mean, yes. beyond the grave. Yeah. Yeah, you were going to say something, Alexandra. I think it's really to do with the fact that there's no intrusive authorial judgment in this text because it is astounding the disjunction between his passion for for Cathy and the way that that's represented with the suggestions of violence bound up in it. I mean, we've been talking a bit about the lack of eroticism or sexual suggestion uh, of their relationship, but if we think about their last embrace, the bruises left upon her body, if we think about Heathcliff's necrophiliac tendencies, he's moved twice to dig up the body, uh, first on the day of the burial. He doesn't. He stopped short. He thinks he can feel her breath close by. 18 years later, uh, he wants to open that casket and gaze upon her peak-preserved face. Um, so there's the violence sort of towards Cathy and towards Cathy's body. There's also the violence towards Is Isabella we've been discussing, but we're not left with any kind of authorial uh, or narrative stamp, an ethical viewpoint on it. So I think we remember, we register as readers, the intensity, the immediacy of his desires. So it's amor vincit omnia, however wild the amor, is it, John? I think that's right. And, it, and it's a sense that it's tormenting, in a way, mm. that, that passion is torment. Um, and it's often with people who are not there. So it affirms erotic desire up to and beyond death without any ethical framework or theological um, um, boundaries to it. It might be thought, just a suggestion, morally awkward, that this is expressed mainly through revenge. And uh, the engine of the book is revenge. Is that right? And if so, Absolutely. how does that square with, and how do, does anybody square it with this great, this um, enormous, fathomless love that he undoubtedly had, or possession? Or what is it? It is a revenge plot. And like lots of great you know, 
Hamlet is a revenge plot too. You know, it's one of the great motors of plot in the Western tradition, I think, is because it's reciprocal violence. Somebody does something bad to you, so you do something bad to them. And and the novel, in a way, is asking what could possibly end that, I think? What could bring that to an end? And in, and in the end, it's almost Heathcliff relinquishes it, um, that somehow he... he is so tormented by Cathy that he then, as it were, stops eating and towards the end of the book, like Catherine had done earlier on, uh, so that he can then join her. She stops eating too. She stops eating to punish them. She, Linton, isn't, her husband, isn't doing what she wants. Heathcliff isn't doing what she wants doing what she wants, so she says, I will break their hearts by breaking my own first. And the way she does that is to starve herself. Yes. It, it's, a, it, it's, it's a kind of utterly lawless, ruleless passionate affirmation uh, of your desire. We read, you were talking about reading earlier, Karen, we read that you read the Greeks. There's a lot there, isn't there, Euripides? Um, I think there's there's a lot about that, that sense of tragedy and tragic downfall yeah. uh, overlaid with this idea of the revenge plot and the fact that revenge somewhat overtakes the revenger. Uh, there's also, I think, another plot in there which is really about property and, and dynastic uh, illegitimacy and legitimacy and, and, and that the, the the fact that the property is taken away from the Earnshaw family and ultimately restored to them. So there are there are a number of classic plots at work. It's, uh, in a way, a highly literary novel. At the same time, for a long time, it was regarded as formless, and that being one of its faults, you would dispute that. I would absolutely dispute that. And, and, and it, I think if you... It's very, very carefully dated. As, as John alluded to, it starts being set back in the late 18th century. Uh, the narrative begins in 1801 and ends in 1802, and you can track very carefully how well Emily Bronte sows the seeds all the way through of the plot that is to come. Right at the beginning, Lockwood sees the name Hareton over the... written on the door lintel of Wuthering Heights... Uh, as though that is the ownership to which we're eventually returning. So it is it is in terms of that uh, plot about property ownership and a re-ownership very well, very carefully done. I think it's also incredibly done in terms of names. So this shuffling around of names that we see at the beginning, Linton, Earnshaw, Heathcliff. Heathcliff's name actually is the name that the Earnshaw family had given to a dead child, but he never has a surname. And then he becomes Mr Heathcliff, then he acquires the property, then... Uh, on his gravestone we have only the name Heathcliff. So I think that sort of movement between identities is beautifully plotted out in the novel. Did the fact that it was... Alexander, I'll turn to you. <coughs> Does the fact that it, in most people's experience, I guess, what they're doing is impossible, mm. and yet we give it the greatest respect and their interest, does that mean that we are, our, our idea of impossible is pretty limited? Our idea of the impossible yeah. in terms of achieving a romance post No, post in, terms death. Of, in terms of basically, in terms of passion, in terms of love, yes. in terms of devotion, that's what I'm talking about. Well, it, I mean, this comes back to something Karen was saying earlier in terms of uh, the way in which it's figured. I think Cathy's idea of their connection is a little bit more naive in the sense that she believes she can have both Edgar and Heathcliff in her life and they can coexist. It's really She believes the, she can marry Edgar, yes. live in the posh house yes. and still have the same relationship with Heathcliff and that, the, that they've had since children. And that or, the benefits of that can be brought forward into her life with Heathcliff also. Yeah. So partly uh, it's her reaction to their violent exchange when Heathcliff returns, of course unhappy with this state of affairs, uh, that causes that her got, to have sorry, a... Sorry, yeah. please be the man who bores me. But unhappy that she has got married while he was away for those three years we are led to believe that he expected her to wait for him and they expected her always to be there for him. Well, he's heard her say that she couldn't marry him. So yeah, I think he right. comes back intent on revenge rather right. than necessarily on, on claiming a, a romance with Cathy. We can't, know. We can't know because we know so little of what happens in his mind during his absence. In fact, we know nothing. 
And that's one of the one of the interesting things to me about this book is its gaps and silences and the compulsive repetitions we've been talking about, but also the way in which it figures memory and trauma. And that's precisely one of the ways in which it does so. Charlotte Bronte felt moved to write to, to the second edition and felt moved to write a portrait of her sister, uh-huh. um, moderating uh, some of the charges brought against her by the critics. Could yes. you tell us about that? Yeah, this is really interesting. This is Charlotte Bronte taking on the role of interpreter of Emily. Emily. She said that um, an interpreter ought always to have stood between Emily and the world. And she does that in the preface where she has very much in mind the horrified reviews of the first edition. The second edition, very interesting, uh, I'll come to this perhaps a bit later that also Charlotte edited uh, and made various changes to, has this interpretive framework that most readers from 1850 and throughout the 20th century encountered. And in it, Charlotte outlines the way in which, as Karen has already mentioned, um, Emily was writing from the impulse of nature, which is a rather disingenuous disavowal of her learning and her thinking. She develops before Gaskell had the chance to do so in her own biography of Charlotte Bronte, the Bronte myth about the sort of isolated, uh, uncivilised Haworth setting, which is completely untrue. Um, and no, she's describing 5,000 population absolutely. town with, heavy, with good industry. Absolutely. Though, yes. And of course, the sisters had travelled extensively and were producing essay work for their teacher in Brussels. So um, this is completely mythologising in a rather diminishing way. She also has, I think, quite a vexed approach to Emily's talents. She was in great admiration of Emily's genius, but then sought to rein that in in terms which would make it more palatable for the 19th century readership. She sort of babyfied her, didn't she? She said she was stronger than a man and stronger than a man and simpler than a child. Is that right? That's right. Her nature right. stood apart. Yeah. Yes, her nature stood apart. Okay, but the other two aren't. Yeah. <laughs> um, what? So, do you think those? Cha- well, <coughs> let's, let's not talk about those changes. Let's talk about this business of the afterlife, about meeting as ghosts. I'm giving this to you, John. Away you go. Yes, well, so, so just picking up that, Charlotte says, whether it's right to create somebody like Heathcliff, who goes arrow straight to perdition, who goes to hell, um, I don't know, she says. But, of course, I think it's much more complicated in the book. In a way, you know, um, it's a revenge book, but it's also a novel of ideas, in a way, because Heathcliff, throughout the second half of the book, is haunted by the idea of Cathy, um, that she sort of stays with him all the way and seems somehow, at least in his own mind, and we never know this for sure, seems to come closer and closer to him, so he's almost visibly seeing her. Now, part of the power of the book is it never really gets you inside people's psychologies, that you see what they do, but you never know what their thought processes are. So with Heathcliff and Cathy, you never know, is this a fantasy, is this a delusion, is he genuinely haunted? And the novel has a wonderfully kind of balanced ending about that, in which Lockwood says he can't imagine unquiet slumbers. But we've already seen several people who've seen them walking as ghosts. So whether they're genuine ghosts, whether it's a psychological process, whether it's Heathcliff's delusion, they're all floating there uh, in the conclusion of the book. Do you think this is part of the power of the book, Karen? I do. I mean, I think whatever the case, this idea of the ghost uh, incorporates the idea that there's something so excessive, so unassimilable that the idea of a kind of continuous life after death really encapsulates that that excess in life. And uh, for the daughter of a clergyman, it is really quite surprisingly heterodox, isn't it? This idea of, of heaven is, is not something that you want to go to, but but it's a kind of spectral presence on earth. And I think the idea that the, the dead and the living are somehow interpenetrated all 
the time. This is a, a huge theme in Emily Bronte's wonderful poems, and it's a huge metaphysical theme in the book. And as John says, you can't be absolutely sure what the status of the, the ghosts really is, whether, you know, as, as with a lot of novels, you're somewhere between something that's material and something that's, that's purely a figure of the character's imagination. But to put a question to you that I sort of stutter through with John, do you think it's the... the um, ferocity and strangeness of what in the end is passion that people at some t- the heights of many people's lives and it's that which excuses as it were the, the brutalities and savageries and revenge do you think that is one of the reasons why I wouldn't they- dichotomise them I think violence is an energy in the book it's part of aliveness uh, and uh, it's on a continuum with passion uh, it's also living in a world that is very clearly approximated to the non-human meaning of the natural world uh, in Wuthering Heights that, that's constantly alluded to as the novel goes full cycle towards the end, we get back into a world of gardens and books. Hareton and the younger Cathy read books, they cultivate gardens, and they're trying to move their world back into one that's, in a very fragile sense, cultivated and acculturated. But one should not dichotomise these two things. To come back to the question of the ghosts, the ghost, I think, for me, of Cathy is uh, a manifestation of Heathcliff's trauma. It's his possession in the sense that uh, he can't ever quite access the ghost. And he has almost... uh, registered but not experienced the event there's that lovely moment the quiet tableau where Nellie intuits that it's not a moment of apparent grief it's in fact the point at which Heathcliff says where is she not dead not in heaven where he can't quite accept the fact that she's gone and although he sees her in every cloud in every tree he's driven to open and close his eyes a hundred times a night but can't fully capture the image so for me what Emily Bronte is really interested in working out quite ahead of her time before the 50s and 60s and railway trauma is the uh, fractured memory and problems at Heathcliff not only wants actively to remember, but he has an unmanageable pathology of memory. If there's one big thing that that that, that can explain his grip on an increasing number of readers all over the place, what would you say it was, John? It's the way that it, it both deals with the most fundamental, mythical, primal questions of human being about nature and about culture, about civilization and what's not civilized, uh, and it embeds that in an utterly credible and believable um, particularised landscape and action. The landscape, sorry about this, yeah. but the landscape roots it, doesn't it, in that sense? It does. And I think it's, it's bound to be real because it's up there in that place. Yes, both both in space and in time too, so it's got a beautifully organised time scheme to it in which you can date almost everything. The two together make it so strong. Karen, what's your comment on that? My comment is, uh, Charlotte said of her sister that Emily never felt she had to explain what she meant. This is a novel that does not feel it needs to explain what it means, and that's what makes it so compelling. That alone? Not that alone, uh, but that it's it's part of that, that uh, cutting and uh, focusing on the intense moments and leaving some of the gaps, uh, the narrative gaps, the pedestrian infills, how did Heathcliff make his money, what happened during those three years, unfilled. And what did they do on the on the on the on the heath? That was terrific. Thank you very much, Karen O'Brien, Alexandra Lewis, and John Bow. And next week we'll be discussing Constantine the Great, who shifted the religion of the Roman Empire towards Christianity and its centre towards Byzantium. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. <laughs> so, what did we not cover? Would you say what most? What um, did we miss out most importantly? Oh, only about the comedy. I think it's quite funny. You know the bit with Lockwood at the beginning where he's going, mm. uh, "Are these? Oh, perhaps these are your favourites, thinking that they're puppies and they're part of dead rabbits." And when yeah. he keeps getting everybody wrong at the beginning, yeah. he thinks he's in a Jane Austen novel and he's not. And I think there's a wild comedy 
to the book too. Yes. I think I think Joseph is quite Joseph a, a comic a guy guy I, I, yeah. Yes, that that you know the yeah. the kind of Calvinist uh, yeah. uh, hypocrite who goes on about how reprobate everyone was and how Heathcliff is troubled by his conscience and just positioning that you know conventional hellfire religion for you know for the Victorian bit on the margins of the plot mm. uh, and 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 showing him sort of living through these changes is 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 really quite comical at times yeah. and there there is a black comedy to this yeah. novel. I, I agree with that. Now, the instances you've given and want to give more, when Joseph turns up to claim little Linton uh, and take him away, all dressed up and uh, mm. and so on. On, but they're completely steamrolling <laughs> <laughs> for me. Really. There, oh yeah, fine, right? Let's get on with it. Let's come <laughs> the main thing, Alexandra. Well, we discussed Nellie and her unreliability a little bit, but I'd broaden the terms of that debate to look at the way Charlotte described her as a benevolent nurturer. Uh, and then you've got critics coming in later in the, the 20th century saying she's a villain, one of the most consummate villains in English literature. So really quite diverse viewpoints on, on the grounds that she withholds information, mm. as Karen was saying, mm. uh, on the grounds, though, that she, she actively engineers and perhaps is sort of jealous in class and status terms of, of this family. We, we, we tend to forget her age. She's sort of mm. only... Agent of or an agent yes. of patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. that would exactly. When, when you learn she's 27, mm. I'd forgotten all that. I've long, so long as I previously read You think, that young? I kept thinking in her mm. 40s for those yes. days, mm-hmm. a sort of yeah. buxom, settled yeah. woman of, of yes. not sort of of the world, or certainly of that world, mm. not 27, which could be... No, she's, she's almost yeah. like a, 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 that's you know, right. one of the children too, in a way. That's right. yeah. Scheming and jealous herself. Yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. way that she talks about Cathy's madness is, you know, oh, there are going to be broken bones, she says, a sort of lack of sympathy, and she yes. talks at one point about how she's only ever happy when she's in the you know, room of, you know, watching over the dead. You know, there's something quite morbid and quite yeah. strange yeah. about Nelly. Well, she says a bit more on that, doesn't it? Because she says when she's watching the dead, it's the expression on their faces. Yes, that that's she's happy. Yes, not yeah, so just yes. that they're dead. We can call it that's a given in the mortuary. It's that uh, they look as if they're at peace. That's what she feels yeah, happy about. Yeah. But she's a hard woman, I think, in some ways. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, the other thing I think is the, is the extraordinary complexity of the time scheme. And nobody notices it till the 1920s. And it's an economist who notices it, a friend of Keynes, mm. who notices just how you can. You can do a very, very detailed time scheme mm. uh, for the whole novel and these very complicated patternings of the, the second half and the first half of names and of times. And I think that's there's this wild passion and then this beautifully complicated narrative and time structure in which it fits. Mm. must be terribly frustrating for people like you three that there aren't all her preparatory notes, her first drafts, her... Must be very frustrating. Oh, the absence but of a manuscript is, is distressing for editors. I mean, in you know making choices these days, most yes. editors do tend to revert. I've reverted to the 1847 as a copy text, but it's notoriously unreliable, as Karen was saying. The newbie yes. sort of yeah. put this out uh, with, uh, Charlotte said, mortifying punctuation and spelling. But then Charlotte makes wholesale changes to the dialect speech of Joseph in particular, mm-hmm. to the punctu- uh, punctuation and the paragraphing in her second edition. So we can't know sort of what authoritatively Emily would have wanted just have do you think we know about Charlotte's uh, corrections? Do you think that they were beneficial or not? I think the the ones to Joseph's speech are clear, clearly not. That there's clearly mm. a, you know a kind of a lack of trust that the reader can cope with uh, Emily's rendition of Yorkshire yes. dialect. But there's some tidying up, isn't there, Alexandra, of, of the various mistakes that Newby left in? There's some tidying up yeah. of the mistakes, but she also dispensed with punctuation that I would see as integral to the characters' rhythms of speech uh, like and the rhythms marks, of the novel. Yeah. And many of those, I mean, in the Norton edition, which I've just prepared, I've brought them back because so too the dialect speech. Mm. Charlotte doubted that Southerners. Mm. 
uh, Londoners, urban-centred readers, would be able to understand. But isn't that, in fact, part of the point? Yes. Uh, that yeah. Emily wanted us to have a sense of the strangeness that Lockwood experiences. Mm. Uh, C- you can know. I say something a bit challenging, though? I- I'm personally not sorry that the Gondal stories have disappeared. Huh? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, yeah. um, I mean, I think w- with Charlotte and Bramwell's Angry and Glass Time, one feels slightly swamped by uh, this rather complicated world that is, you know, a world of romance and myth and mm. uh, and rehearsal, really. Uh, and what you were describing, John, is that, you know, that ability to take that world and to place that in a domestic setting, so to create a Victorian domestic novel out of the raw materials of romance is, is, a, phen- is a phenomenal feat of alchemy. Uh, and I don't want to see the workings, personally. Mm. I, really? I, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel a bit like that. That's very interesting. So if, if I said, as it happens in my back pocket, I was rumbling through <laughs> an old antique shop. Don't want to know. Sure. <laughs> old chess, old, old chess, 50 cent, old chess. There was this pile of papers. And You'd be a very behold, wealthy man. Are you interested? <laughs> are you interested? No, give them away, of course. Oh, you, you wouldn't be interested. You'd say, no, no not me. No, no, Pass them on no. to John, you uh, Partly, And also well, I think because the I, poems... I'll take them, Mel. The poems... The ladies first. The fact that the poems could be so beautifully detached from that dramatic context and acquire this kind of lyric anonymity that they have their extraordinary poems, they're worth a whole other radio programme clearly in their own right. The fact that they can stand alone in the way that they do uh, tells us probably something about what the the pretext that Gondal created for Emily for a mm. rather different kind of creativity. Mm. I'm, be, I, I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't agree, but that's, yeah. you know... On the, on the, I'd like to have the manuscript of Wuthering Heights, but I don't think I want to know more about Emily. I mean, she clearly was very reserved. She didn't want people to know about it. She didn't want to, her name even to be known. So you could publish it under Ellis Bell, really, because I think Emily probably would have been happier. So the fact that she you know so little about her biography in a way just means it's just this one object that she's created and then you just have to live with the consequences you, sometimes if you know a lot of biography you explain it away rather than just registering its force you know. that can be aggravating I agree um. well that comes back to Charlotte's comment doesn't it about the artistic uh, genius being something that strangely wills and works for itself I absolutely agree in the critical history of the Brontes we've been mired with biographical debates and, and questions that detract from the text so I agree with you on that mm. score John tell her not the tale mm. Well, never trust the teller, trust the teller, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. got it the wrong way around first time, yeah. And we we didn't get on to film and TV and other yeah. adaptations. Just as well. But there's, just as well. <laughs> so I didn't get to say that my favourite is still the Kate Bush song, and I, I think that's a yes, wonderful, I wanted to wonderful song. rendition of <laughs> Kathy as this ghoulish child woman. I think yeah. it's brilliant, actually. Yeah. And has she did that when better. she was 18, didn't she? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She she was profoundly in touch with what Cathy was about, and yeah. she that comes through in the dance and in the music. Mm. Well, maybe in this podcast it'll whirl its way around to Cathy. <laughs> She'll be very pleased about that. She should be. Well, thank you all very much. I think the producer's coming in to make us an offer we can't refuse. Yeah, just to offer to your coffee, if you'd like to your coffee. Coffee would be great. Coffee, coffee please. And for more podcasts on arts and ideas from the BBC. Follow the link on our website to the best of BBC Radio 3's free thinking programme.